First John chapter four. First John chapter four. It is Father's Day, but we're in a, a section of our study of First John that kind of fits really well because we really can't talk about being a father or honoring the fathers in our lives without understanding the perfect father, our heavenly father. And one of the main things we need to understand about our heavenly father is that he is love. He always acts in a way that is in accordance with love. And so when we get to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, to continue our study, John is going to talk about this Father who is love. Now, it seems like kind of an odd topic to transition to right after he talked about false teachers, false prophets, but he starts the chapter by reminding us that we have an enemy out there who wants to deceive us. His whole purpose for this letter is, is to teach us to go deeper with the Lord, to give us that assurance of our salvation so we can go deeper in our relationship with Jesus. But the enemy that we have, he wants to deceive us so that either we never come into a relationship with our Heavenly Father or to keep us from going deeper in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so, in verse 7, after talking about how to recognize those false prophets, John returns back to the topic of loving one another. Because none of us were saved or created to be a loner. We need one another to live in victory over this deception, and we love one another because, well, our God, who is our Father, is love. So, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another for... Love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. John starts off here by explaining where love originated from. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now, this address, beloved. This is the fourth time John addresses us this way, and it means you who are greatly loved. So, how greatly are we loved by God? Well, John already asked us to ponder that and consider that in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, behold, what manner, what kind, and literally that word manner means out of this world kind, the thing that's, that's not the norm. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And then he explains what kind it is, that we should be called the sons of God. That we should be called the sons of God. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it tells us about Jesus, that he died for us, and he's rescued us through the cross, and he did it because he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. That's what the cross did for us. It brought us near to God. It made us his kids. It made us part of God's family. And again, why is there a cross? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This confidence that we have, that God owns me as his child, that Jesus is not ashamed to call me family, that is to be a motivator for my obedience. On family get-togethers, you know, some of you may have multiple family members or maybe that one family member that you're like, hey, is that, your, is that, that, part of your, that guy part of your family? Yeah, he's part of the family. And somebody's like, amen. <laughs> A lot of us have that situation and, and stuff, but there's none of that in the family of God. It's not like when we get to heaven, we're going to look at it and go, oh, you're here too? And the, and the Lord's going to be like, shh, don't want anyone else knowing. 
He owns us as His child. Jesus is not ashamed to call His family. That confidence we have that we are His, that's our motivator for obedience. In Song of Solomon, the wife repeatedly says, I am my beloved's and He is mine. Her confidence in who she is and what that means, it fuels her actions in the relationship. And we know that that marriage relationship paints a picture of our relationship with the Lord. So, John first reminds us who we are, and then he tells us what to do. Beloved, you who are greatly loved by God, you that, who God owns as His child, let us love one another. You're not the only kid in the family. Let us love one another. Literally, it means we should be in the habit of loving one another. Now, this verb, love one another, it's in the mood of possibility, which means it is possible we might not be in the habit of loving one another. Which is it for you? Are you in the habit of loving your brothers and your sisters in Christ? You know, one of the areas I think that we often neglect this habit of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is our family. We regularly give our time and our attention for the people at church. We regularly ensure that our attitude is right around people at church, but then we get lazy about how we treat our spouse or our siblings or our kids or our parents. We take them for granted and we forget that they're believers too, that they're our brother or our sister in Christ. Sometimes we'll, we do a marriage counseling with couples. You know, I don't love them anymore. I'm like, okay, well, they're a believer. You're, you're still called to love them. Whether you talk about these feelings or emotions that you say are missing now, they're your brother in Christ. You need to love them. They're your sister in Christ. You need to love them still. We forget that in our, our marriage at times. We forget it in our, our parenting or in how we relate to our siblings or to our parents. But this habit of loving one another is not optional with our family. Now, most of us, if we were asked, do you love your family? Like if Jesus, let me ask Peter, he said, Peter, you love me more than these? You know, if someone were to sit down and go, do you, do you really love your family? I, I think most of us would say, well, of course I love my family. I love them more than anyone. But John's not talking about the, the various definitions of love that our culture can throw out there. John is talking about agape love, this divine love. It's not about words. It's not even about our strong feelings for a person. Agape love is about everyday behavior and attitudes. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 with me. You might want to keep your finger here because we'll be referencing it quite a bit throughout the message. And just a warning, when I finish verse 10, we're not done. We've only just begun. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 tells us about these loving attitudes, these loving behaviors that that, that is love. Starts off, love suffers long, or love is patient. That's not, a, that's not an emotion or a feeling. That's a behavior. It's an attitude. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It says, love does not vaunt itself in the old King James. That means it does not brag on itself. Love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. Again, behaviors, attitudes towards people. Love does not behave itself unseemly. It means it doesn't behave rudely. An attitude, a behavior. Love does not seek her own 
does not seek its own. It's not self-seeking. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Love, the old King James says, is not easily provoked, but easily is not in the original manuscript. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil means it keeps no record of wrong. Now, love, as it displays these attitudes and behaviors, as far as its kindness and the way it treats other people, it it also, it says here in verse 6, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love does not celebrate wickedness. It doesn't celebrate someone's sinful behavior. Love is not proud of sinful behavior or wicked behavior. Love does not stand aside and just go, yeah, it's okay that you're doing these things. No, love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It means it bears up under all things. It keeps, when things are crushing you down, when a person's even crushing you down, it still, it bears up under that. It still loves. It believes all things. In other words, it believes the best. It hopes all things. It has an expectation that God is working, and then it endures all things even when it looks like God isn't working. Love never fails. This is the love that we need to have for each other in every context. Family, church life, this is the love we need to have for one another. Any other definition of love is incorrect. You say, that, how can you say that, Will? Because the love that John is talking about, it originates not from within us. It's not something we created. It's not something, therefore, we define. It originated from something outside of us. Beloved, let us love one another, John says, for love is of God. Literally, this thing we call love, it exists. It came into existence from out of God. God is its source. Now, you say, well, anyone could make such a claim that I'm the source of love. How can we know this claim is true? First John 3.16 already explained to us, 1 John 3.16 says, hereby we perceive. Here's how we learn to understand. This is how we learn to know what love is. It says the love of God, but the phrase of God, again, not, it's in italics in your Bible because it's not in the original manuscript. It, it just means this is how we get to understand this thing called love. What is love? How do we know? Well, it tells us because He laid down His life for us. The love that John is talking about here. If you're a Christian, you learned what love is because God behaved a certain way toward you. God acted. He behaved a certain way toward you. He laid aside His very life on the cross for you. And if you are God's child, then you're going to grow to be more like that day by day by day. Verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Now, John's not saying that any person who exhibits loving attitudes is a believer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when someone is saying, I'm a believer, I follow Jesus, well, when you exhibit the selfless and sacrificial love of Christ, it backs up your claim that you follow Jesus. It's true. When you're in the habit of doing that, it backs up your claim that you are born of God, that you have been born again. And it's in the perfect tense, which means not just you've been born again, but you stand as His child. You are His, and you're His forever. And it's explaining that you belong to Him. 
John, remember, he writes this letter because he wants us to know that we're God's child. And our growing love for others is evidence of that salvation. It's evidence that we know God. Everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Literally means getting to know God. You're in that relationship. Our growing love for others is evidence that we have a relationship with Him and that we're growing day by day closer to Him. Why is that so important? Because God doesn't give us spiritual life without filling us with His love. You can't have one without the other. And so if you are not exhibiting the selfless and sacrificial love of God, that's a warning marker of a problem. Verse 8, he that loves not knows not God, for God is love. The phrase loves not means the one who keeps on not loving. In other words, maybe before we were saved, we weren't very loving at all. And now we've gotten saved and God's working on our heart. He goes, if there's no change, then guess what? There's a problem. The one who keeps on not loving. Now, loving one another can be a struggle at times, right? Because, well, we're still us. I still live in this thing, right? I still, I still have to deal with this nonsense that is me. I'm not perfectly like Christ yet. I'm still in a work in progress. So loving one another can be a struggle because we're still us. But loving one another can be a struggle because the enemy still attacks us too. He still hits us from the outside. But here's the good news. God, who is greater than me, my flesh, He's greater than the enemy, He lives inside of us. And because of that, we will grow. We will grow. Therefore, if there's no growth, if there's no progress in the struggle, then something big is missing. He says, you don't know the Lord. You don't know God. And this verb for knowing God here, it depicts a snapshot of a person who is not getting to know God. Like if someone take a picture and you look at that and go, that doesn't look like a believer. And that's just, John says that's because they aren't. Now, I know that's a, a heavy thing to say, but again, love does not rejoice in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth. So I, I care about you and I'm telling you the truth. There is no spiritual growth because you're still dead in your sins. He says, because you've never known the Lord. And the reason you can't be right with the Lord is because a chief attribute of God cannot be absent from the life of his child. It can't. He that loves, loves not knows not God for, why? Because God is love. Now, when we say God is something, we're defining God's nature, his very character. God is holy. He is unique. He's distinct. He's separate from us. When we say that God is love, it means God's nature, His very character is defined by agape. Everything that is described in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Everywhere we see the word love in 1 Corinthians 13 or where the word love is understood to be, we can put the word God and it fits. If you never listened to our teaching on, on 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, I highly recommend it because we spent eight weeks examining each attribute of love and in particular how God exhibits each of those attributes. And I can say I, that is probably one of the studies I've done that I've, I've learned more than anything. I learned about how awesome my God is and how very much He loves me as He exhibits all these attributes. God suffers long. He's patient 
fact that we're all still breathing shows he's very patient. And God is kind. I have never gone to the Lord and had him have a harsh word for me. He's spoken truth. He's spoken hard things to me. I've read in his word when he has said some heavy things to me. But the Lord has always been kind to me. God does not envy. God doesn't, he doesn't envy. Like if things go good for us, he's not like, oh, that's great. You got this going for you. The whole Middle East thing's got me occupied. He loves it when you're blessed. God does not brag on himself. How many times do we see Jesus going, I don't take any glory for myself. I give it all to the Father. Holy Spirit doesn't try to draw attention to himself, tries to point the way to Jesus. Love is not arrogant. Jesus described himself as, come unto me, for I am, what, meek and lowly in heart. Never accused of being arrogant. Love does not behave itself rudely. God is not rude. God did not seek his own. He would have stayed in heaven if that was the case. God is not provoked. The Bible says judgment is God's slow work. And God does not keep a record of wrong. David said, Lord, if you were to mark iniquity, who would stand? None of us. God does not rejoice in iniquity, but he rejoices in the truth. God never, ever compromises his standard. Anytime you see the word statutes in the Bible that's talking about God's standards, it's fascinating when you read about, like particularly the Psalms, where the psalm writers talk about God's statutes. They always talk about God. I'm going to cling to your statutes. I'm not moving the standard. He'll talk about the wicked things people are doing around him. The psalmist will say, I'm not moving your standard. God's standard never changes because he's the same. He does not rejoice in iniquity. He rejoices in the truth. God bears all things went to the cross, believes all things. We sang those worship songs today. There's another in the fire, the idea of the desert song, the idea of, you know, God, you've poured into me, and I'm now supposed to be emptied to serve others. We're not living in such a horrible time that God still doesn't want to work. We're driving here this morning, and me and Bev were talking just about some of the things that we're seeing going on around us, and man, it feels like society is just unraveling. God's not unraveling, and God, he still has a desire to work, still a desire to work. He believes all things. God hopes all things. He has an expectation for us. He endures all things, puts up with all of our nonsense, and of course, God never fails. His promises never fail. His character towards us never fails. John's point is, since God is like this, if you're not like this towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, then Jesus can't be living inside of you. Now, again, that's a heavy thing to say. And John anticipates that some will object, that some will say, but I know I love people. I know I care about those who are close to me. I have really strong feelings for them. I, I think about them all the time. But the truth is, none of that is necessarily love. You, you can have those things and not really love a person because love is not love if it's just contained inside of me. Love is proven by a display of certain attitudes and certain behavior toward a person. That's how it's proven. 
Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? I mean, God could have said it a thousand times, but instead he proved it to us. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal with that? Verse 9, in this, there's a specific thing that God displayed his love towards us. In this was manifested, was put on display, the love of God toward us. This word manifested implies that something always existed, but it was finally put on full display. Since God is love, He has always loved. In fact, before creation, there was love amongst the Godhead. This is, by the way, one of the reasons that God has to be more than just a single person in the Godhead, why we believe in a trinity. There must be more than one person in the Godhead. The Bible tells us repeatedly over and over again that God says about His Son, this is my what? Beloved Son. God loved the Son from all eternity. God the Father loved the Son for all eternity. There was love within the Trinity for all eternity. If God was, there were not multiple persons in the Godhead, if God did not actually love anyone, then God could not be love. But John isn't talking about God's love toward just anyone here. It says, in this was put on display the love that God has towards us in our case. God always loved us, but He put that love on full display so we would never doubt it by doing a certain thing. It says, because that He sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Over and over again, the Father reminds us how much Jesus means to Him. Why? I think it's easy to minimize the incarnation I think we think of the cross, of course, but we minimize the incarnation. I mean, it's not like God could share the closeness He had with Jesus with any human being or any angel in heaven. It's not like He could look over and go, you know, I'm, I'm missing Jesus. Gabriel, come on over here and give me a hug. It's not the same. There's no one that understood each other, right, like that. There was no other relationship. No one could replace Jesus to the Father. I mean, could anyone replace one of your kids? No. When Jesus was sent away into the earth, there was no other one exactly like Jesus in the Father's presence. It says that He was the only begotten Son. It means unique, one of a kind. In the incarnation, the Father gave to us the person who was most precious to Him. Do you realize the massive sacrifice the Father made to send Jesus into our earth? We... We might send off our kids to go do something. We might allow them to go play with their friends, spend the night somewhere, whatever. But would you willingly send them away knowing what it was going to cost you to send them away? I dare say most of us would not. We need to understand the massive sacrifice the Father made to send Jesus into our earth, and then we need to connect the dots. Because if we don't, we're missing John's point. Because John doesn't just say he sent his son into the world, but then he explains why, that we might live through him. In other words, why did he do this? Why did he make such a sacrifice? It was for us, out of love for us. He said, I want to put my love on full display, and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send my son into your world 
to be born as a man, to live in your muck and your mire. And then he's going to be mistreated and he's going to go to the cross for you. And I'm going to have to watch all that. That you might live through him. Now, eternal life is only found in Jesus. That was the only way it could get done. But the fact that it says that you might live through him means some will choose to not live through him. The choice to experience the eternal life that God offered to us is ours. You can receive it or you can reject it. God cannot be blamed if we reject it because he literally gave the most precious thing he had to make eternal life possible for us. What more do you want him to do? Which is John's point. This is how much the Father loves you. Verse 10, herein is love. Not that we loved God. God's sending of Jesus was not a reaction to anything we did. It's not like we were down here going, oh God, Adam and Eve sinned and you know, we've inherited their sin nature and it's just really so hard here and we just want to please you and do things your way all the time. We know that that's what's best for us, but we just can't do it. We need a savior. And the father goes, oh, how cute. I'll send Jesus. No, no. It's not because of anything we did. God's love isn't a love that responded to us because of how much we loved him. Listen, there are some people in our lives that are easy to love. My wife is easy to love most of the time. (laughs) All the time. I first met her We are high school sweethearts. We met in homeroom in ninth grade, and we had mutual friends, which is how we got connected. And so we all sat together. There's four of us all sat together, hung out. And I loved being around Bev. Everybody loved being around Bev. She never upset anybody. She was easy to hang out with. You felt welcomed. You felt loved. I was the exact opposite type of human being. You came around me and it was abrasion. You came around me and it was like, what's his problem? You came around me and you asked the question, you found out I was a Christian, you go, he's a Christian? Does he love anybody? People actually asked her that when we first started dating. The only reason that people actually listened to anything I had to say at first was because she was nice. She was easy to love. I was hard to love. I wasn't trying to be hard to love, but I, I did. I had rough edges. In 25 years, you think, oh, you're not that hard to love. Well, yes, she's been working on me a long time. (laughs) So has Jesus. But God's love isn't a love that responded to us because we were just easy to love. I'm not saying we were hard to love for God. I'll get to that in a second. But it's not like you're just like, oh, they're just so wonderful. You know, I just, I'd like to know them. No. It had nothing to do with anything we did for him or anything that we somehow were lovable. In fact, his love is directed towards us simply because he chose to do so. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God made the choice to value us Now, I know that messes with some people's theology. Like, you can't say that. You know, there's nothing valuable about us that God would want us. Hold on a second. If the creator of the universe says, I'm going to place value on something, it doesn't have to have inherent value for it to be valuable. It's valuable because God said it was valuable to him. So it's valuable because he says, you're valuable to me. 
And you say, well, how valuable were we to God? His son. That's how valuable. That's the price he put on us. That's the, the thing that would redeem us. That's it. You weren't redeemed, Peter says, with the blood of animals or things that other people did to try to appease their gods. You were redeemed with the precious blood of his own dear son. How highly does God value? How much does he love you? That much. He loves you as much as he loves his son. Which is, I don't get it, but that's what the Bible teaches. See, how could that be possible? Nothing like Jesus. You're right. That's how awesome this love is. God made the choice to value us, not because of anything we would add to him, but because we were precious and we were dear to him. And that we were precious and dear to him and that he made a choice to value us is proved by what Jesus did to win us back. It says here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation, it's when two people are, are at odds or they're, they're the opposite of reconciled, they're separated. The propitiation is the means whereby the person who's been offended is appeased so that reconciliation is possible. Now, don't misunderstand. God the Father has never been aloof toward us. We are so very far beneath him, but he has always longed to draw us close to him. Now, my sin got in the way of that. And God, because he's just, he's not just love, he's not just holy, he's just, the Bible also says. And because he's just, he can't just ignore my sins. He has to bring justice. Well, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the offering which can alter who I am. I am no longer an enemy of God. And so it can therefore alter how I relate to God. I can be his child. When I receive that gift, that, that offering that Jesus made, his life, death, and resurrection on my behalf, when I place my trust in that, well, then I'm choosing to live. He says, God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live. You could choose not to live or you could choose to live that we might live. When you place your trust in what Christ did for you, well, the Bible tells us you're changed. You are altered from a child of wrath and now you become a child of God. The Father loves us so much that he made this massive sacrifice of sending Jesus out of heaven and into a human body for those who didn't care at all about him so that we could be completely forgiven and raised to the status of being his kids. Do you get John's point? That our Father, who is love, what that means. Do you realize how much the Father loves you? Well, that's something we can all walk away from today, whether you're a father or whether you have a father or not, you know, that's here with you or present in this life still. But there is an application here for those of us who are fathers and those of us who our fathers are still with us. First off, understanding God's nature as a father and that him being a father to us is intrinsically tied to his love for us. It allows us to build a case for what it means to be a human father. Human philosophizing on love or fatherhood are inadequate, and they're actually unnecessary when we have the perfect image of God to learn from. Like, I don't need to, someone to, you know, some poet to compose flowery words to explain to me what a father is. I can say, well, th that's nice, but 
I've got this. I've got the perfect father that I can look at and know what he's like. With that in mind, let's revisit what we learned today. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And then it explains what it is, what kind of love that we should be called the sons of God. This love that he sacrificed so that we could be called his kids, that he owns us as his kids. Jesus owns us as his family. And that confidence that we have in knowing that I belong to him. Listen, dads, one of the most important things that you as a father need to do is to make clear to your kids whose kids they are. They need to know that they are your kids. You need to own them. Like we'll joke sometimes when one of our kids will act a certain way and I'll go, that's your kid. I'm not saying you can't be silly like that, but it needs to be very clear that it's a silly thing. You need to own your kids. You need to not be ashamed to call them your son or your daughter. A child must be confident in their father's love. They must be. If we're going to do our job as dads, they must be confident in that. They must know that they know that they know that they are loved by their dad. They have to know that. They need to be confident in that. And so I ask you, are your kids confident in your love, dads? Do they know that? My dad, we had a very rocky relationship. He wasn't saved. I wasn't saved when we were, he was a young dad. I was, a, I was the oldest of seven. And then when we got saved, it was rocky because we were both growing at the same time and I was selfish teenage brat. But I remember as I got older and my dad became my biggest cheerleader. He became my biggest supporter, my biggest encouragement. He would always tell me, always, I'm so proud that you're my son. Your kids don't have to be perfect for you to say words like that to them and to say them often. Are your kids confident in your love, dads? Do they know? Is that never in doubt for them? Because when we are not having that in doubt with our relationship with God, doesn't that allow us to move forward in our walk with Him? But how do you expect your kids to mature and grow and become young men and women if they're not confident in your love? Now, just like we gain confidence in God's love for us by understanding how He treats us, His attitude towards us, our children are the same way. They gain this confidence of knowing that we love them based on how we treat them, our attitude toward them. And so, while we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, and we could insert God's name in there, and it fit for everything, as fathers, our goal needs to be that we can fit in here as well. Now, I know we're not God. I know we will fall short. But our goal, the standard never needs to move. And it can never be, well, I don't have to be patient with my kids because my kids are rough. No. And so we start off, and it says dads are supposed to be patient. Are you patient, dads? Or are you just fly off the handle quickly? You know, it's funny, my kids, they know that that there are things that have little things I tend to get irritated with. And I, I, don't, I know that's not a good attribute that I, I need to, and I try to work on that to be like, no, I need to be patient, right? Right? With the 17th time that you've done the thing that mom said not to do. We need to be patient. 
We need to go in and say the same things over and over and over again. Dad is kind. Dads, it's not okay to be unkind. That's not whatever type of machismo you think is that. Unkindness is never to be a part of fatherhood. We, I'm brokenhearted at times when I'll talk to teenagers and mostly teenagers, hopefully not younger than that, but yeah, my dad curses at me all the time, calls me a this, a that, a that. That should never be the case, dads. Say, well, they are that. Okay, that's fine. So were you before you knew Christ. So were you when you were struggling in Christ. But what did he say you are? A whole lot of other things. Things that are kind. Dads do not envy. Not supposed to. Are you envious of the amount of time your wife invests into your kids? Are you envious of things that they're experiencing, but you're not experiencing? You know, everybody's happy at home, but I have to go to work, and I hate my job. Love comes home and sees everybody happy and goes, amen, I'm doing my job. Dads do not brag on themselves. You don't have to talk about how wonderful you are. Talk about how wonderful the Lord is, how wonderful your wife is, your kids are. Dad is not arrogant. You're humble. Jesus, he never needs to apologize, but we do as dads. I think one of the best things that I learned as a young dad was it's the right thing to do and to go to your kid and say, listen, we'll talk about your attitude in a second, but the way dad handled that was wrong, and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Don't be arrogant. Dads should not be arrogant. Dads do not behave themselves rudely. Dads do not seek their own. If you're a young man, you're aspiring to be a father or you're a young father, I I tell my boys, I I try to have this conversation with them when they start hitting about eight or nine years old and I start explaining to them, I, I say, listen, I said, God created you, you're a man. God created you to lay down your life for others. That's what you were designed for. That's what you're designed for. You were not designed to go chase the dreams, you know, all the pretty flowers out there and go run, run with the wind. That's not your calling. Your calling is to lay down your life for other people. That's what God designed you to do. That's what he created men to do. So you're not to seek your own. Selfishness is the opposite of manliness. You don't go out and pursue your own. You don't seek your own. You seek others first before yourself. Dads, do you seek your own or others first? Dad is not easily provoked. Easily, of course, not in the original language. So just, guys, we should not have buttons. We shouldn't have buttons that our kids can push. Like, yeah, I know, I know, you know, I shouldn't lose my temper, but man, my daughter said this again. I'm like, who's the adult here? Bever has to remind me that all the time. It's like, well, who's the adult here? And I'm like, me! <laughs> Dads do not keep a record of wrong. Guys, our kids should not be afraid to come to us when they've blown it. I'm not saying they shouldn't be afraid to mess up and then have to come to us about it. I'm I'm saying that when they know they've messed up and they need help, they should know the place that they can come is to dad. Dads do not rejoice in iniquity, but they rejoice in the truth. Listen, I love my kids 
They are the world to me next to my bride. But like if one of my kids were to leave their spouse and be like, Dad, I want to come back, I'd be like, you're not coming back here. You made a vow. Go keep your vow. Well, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, then you can do it on your own because you're not coming back here. I, I am baffled by how many parents will take in their wicked kids and just take them in and just provide for their wicked life, provide for their substance abuse problem, provide for them to not go out and work, provide for them to sin against their families. They should not find safe harbor in your home if they're living in sin. That's part of what love does. Love says, this is going to kill me inside to see you struggling right now, but I'm going to do it because I love you and I want you to repent. The amount of parents that I've talked to in the last five, six, seven years, I just don't want them to be mad at me. You sign up for parenthood, they're going to be mad at you. They're immature. And if they don't ever grow up, they'll stay immature. Job's not to be their friend. Your job is to be their parent. And here's what really cool will happen. If they eventually turn and respond to the Lord, you'll gain the best kind of friend. Dads bear all things. They believe all things. They hope all things. They endure all things. Dads never fail. We'll always be working on this because that will never be true this side of heaven. But that's the goal. That's the goal. So does 1 Corinthians 13 describe your attitude and behavior toward your kids, Dad? Because if not, then Father's Day is a really good day to go, I'm going to change that. I'm going to make some changes today. Lastly, I know I'm out of time, but for those of you who have fathers, listen, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 applies to you as well. I really don't know any, any role that's more maligned in our society today than that of a father. I don't know, because, I mean, you, you know, cartoons and TV shows, movies, they're portrayed as bumbling, stupid, ignorant, annoying, selfish, uneducated, all the things that are just not admirable in society, not likable, not attractive. Let's not be those who add to that with our fathers. Let's be those who honor our fathers. Let's be those who love our fathers. Let's be patient with them. Let's be kind to them. Don't keep a record of wrongs. You say, you don't know what my dad's done. Okay, what about you? Do you want God to keep, your heavenly father to keep a record of everything you've done wrong? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the call to you for your father as well. You say, oh, my dad's not a believer. Okay, well, then you show him something different. Show him this love that's out of this world, that's supernatural. Show him what the heavenly father's like, that he would maybe now be curious and want to know about your heavenly father that has wrought such love in you toward them. Amen? Now, I know the last bit was kind of heavy, especially the dad's part, 1 Corinthians 13. So if any of this discouraged you, just remember, how did we start the whole teaching today? How much the father loves you. Remember how much you're loved by your father. And if that was convicting, okay, well, then run to him in confidence. He, you know, he's not looking at you today going, you're a bad dad. Don't ever come here again on Father's Day. Or don't ever come here again. No, run to him in confidence because he's not gonna turn you away and he's the one who can help. 
So let's all leave today, whether you're a father or you want to love your father more, honor your father more, whatever it is, let's all leave today, here today empowered to do better. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much that you are an awesome dad. You are the best. Lord, as much as we might want to emulate you, we know we fall short, but Lord, we thank you that you never fall short. Thank you for this amazing love that you have displayed towards us, that you proved through the cross, through the incarnation. Lord, we don't ever want to minimize that. And then, Lord, we want to, as dads, we want to live up to our dad. We carry your name, Jesus. We carry your name, Lord. We want to live up to our family name. So, Lord, as dads, fill us with your spirit in the areas that we've surrendered to you this morning to be better dads. Enable us to do that, we pray. Help us, we ask. And then for all of us, Lord, that we would be loving towards our fathers. Help us to love one another, that one another includes our fathers. Help us to do that, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. In the areas we're convicted and we're, we're talking to you about right now in our hearts, would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.